The Hounds by H.P. Lovecraft Chapter 1 In my tortured ears, there were sounds unceasingly, a nightmare whirring and flapping, and a faint, distant baying of some gigantic hound. It is not a dream. It is not. I fear even madness. For too much had already happened to give me these merciful doubts. St. John is a mingled corpse. I alone know why, and such is my knowledge, that I am about to blow my brains, for fear I shall be mangled in the same way. Down unlit and illimitable corridors of eldritch fantasy sweeps the black, shapeless nemesis that drives me to self-annihilation. May heaven forgive the folly and morbidity which led us both to a monstrous fate. Wearied with the commonplaces of a prosaic world, where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grow stale. St. John and I had followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. The enigmas of the symbolists and the ecstasies of the pre-Raphaelites all were ours in their time, but each new mood was drained too soon of its diverging novelty and appeal. Only the somber philosophy of the decadence could hold us, and this we found potent only by increasing gradually the depth of diabolicism of our penetrations. Baudelaire and Heinzmann's were soon exhausted of thrills, till finally there remained for us only the more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures. It was this frightful, emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course, which even in my present fear I mention with shame and timidity, that hideous extremity of human outrage, the abhorrent practice of grave robbing. I cannot reveal the details of our shocking expositions, or even catalog partly the worst of the trophies adorning the nameless museums we prepared in the great stone house where we jointly dwelt, alone and servantless. Our museum was a blasphemous, unthinkable place, where, with the satanic taste of neurotic versiosi, we assembled a universe of terror and decay to excite our jaded personalities. It was a secret room far, far underground, where huge ringed demons, carven of basalt and onyx, vomited from a wide, grinning mouths, weird green and orange light, and hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled into a kaleidoscopic dance of death. The lines of red charnel things, hand in hand, woven in voluminous black hangings. Through these pipes came at will the odors of our mood most crave, sometimes a scent of pale funeral lilies, sometimes an archaic incense of imagined eastern shrines of kingly dead. Sometimes, how I shudder to recall it, the frightful soul-upheaving stenches of the uncovered grave. Around the walls of this repellent chamber were cases of antique mummies alternating with comely, lifelike bodies perfectly stuffed and cured by the taxidermist art, with headstones snatched from the oldest churchyard of the world. 
niches here and there contain skulls of all shapes, and heads preserved in various stages of dissolution. There one might find rotting, bald plates of famous noblemen, and the flesh and radiant golden heads of newly buried children. Statues and paintings there were all of fiendish subjects, and some executed by St. John and myself. A locked portfolio bound in tanned human skin held certain unknown and unnameable drawings, which it was rumored Goya had perpetrated but dared not acknowledge. There was a noxious musical instruments, stringed bass and woodwinds, on which John and I sometimes produced dissonance of exquisite morbidity, cacodemological ghastliness. Wilt saw in a multitude of inlaid ebony cabinets repose the most and unimaginable variety of tomb loot ever assembled by human madness and perversity. It is of this loot in particular that I must not speak. Thank God I had the courage to destroy it long before I thought of destroying myself. The predatory excursions on which we collected our unmentionable treasures were always artistically memorable events. We were no longer vulgar ghouls, but worked only under certain conditions of mood, landscape, environment, weather, season, and moonlight. These pastimes were to us the most exquisite form of aesthetic expression, and we gave their details a fastidious technical care, an inappropriate hour, a jarring lightning effect, or a clumsy manipulation of the damp soil would almost totally destroy, for us, the ecstatic titillation which followed the exhumation of some ominous grinning secret of the earth. Our quest for novel scenes that piquant conditions were feverishly and insatiate. St. John was always a leader, and he was who led the way at last to that mocking, that accursed spot which brought us to our hideous and inevitable doom. By what malign fatality were we lured to that terrible hall in church? I think it was the dark rumor and legendary, the tales of one buried for five centuries, who had himself been a ghoul in his time and had stolen a potent thing from a mighty sepulchre. I recall the scene in these final moments, the pale autumnal moon over the graves, casting long, horrible shadows, grotesque trees drooping sullenly to meet the neglected grass in crumbling slabs, the vast legions of strangely colossal bats that flew against the moon, the antique ivy church pointing a huge spectral finger to the livid sky, the phosphorescent insects which dance like death fires under yews in a distant corner, the odor of mold, vegetation, less inexplicable things that mingled freely with the night wind from over far swamps and seas, and worst of it all, faint, deep tone baying of some gigantic hound which we could neither see nor definitely place. As we heard this suggestion of baying, we shuddered, remembering the tales of the peasantry. For he whom we sought had centuries before been found in the self-same spot, 
torn and mangled by claws and teeth of some unspeakable beast. I remember how we delved into this ghoul's graves with our spades, and how we thrilled at the picture of ourselves, the grave, the pale watching moon, the horrible shadows, the grotesque trees, the titanic bats, the antique church, the dancing death fires, the sickening odors, the gentle moaning, the night wind, and the strange, half-heard, directionless baying of whose objective existence we could scarcely be sure. Then we struck a substance harder than the damp mold and beheld a rotting oblong box crusted with mineral deposits from the long, undisturbed ground. It was incredibly rough and thick, but so old that we finally pried it open and feasted our eyes on what it held. Much, amazingly much, was left the object despite the lapse of 500 years. The skeleton, though, crushed in spaces by the jaws of the thing that had killed it, held together with surprisingly firmness, and we gloated over the clean white skull and its long, firm teeth and its eyeless sockets that once glowed with a charnel fever like our own. In the coffin lay an amulet of curious and exotic design, which had apparently been worn around the sleeper's neck. It was the oddly conventionalized figure of a crouching, winged hound, or sphinx, semi-canine face, and was exquisitely carved in an antique oriental fashion from a small piece of green jade. The expression on its feature was repellent in the extreme, savoring at once bestiality and malevolence. Around the base was an inscription in characters which neither St. John nor I could identify, and on the bottom, like a maker's seal, was graven a grotesque and formidable skull. Immediately, upon beholding this amulet, we knew that we must possess it, that this treasure alone was our logical pelf from the centuried grave. Even had its outlines been unfamiliar, we would have desired it. But as we looked more closely, we saw that it was not wholly unfamiliar. Alien, it was, to all arts and literature, which sane and balanced readers know. But we recognized it as a thing hinted of the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdulazared, the ghastly soul seal of the corpse-eating cult of inaccessible Ling of Central Asia. All too well did retrace the sinister liniments described by the old Arab demonologist. Liniments, he wrote, drawn from some obscure supernatural manifestations of souls of who vexed and gnawed at the dead. Seizing the green jade object, we gave a last glance at the bleached and caved and cavern-dyed face of its owner and closed up the grave as we found it. As we hastened from the abhorrent spot, the stolen amulet in St. John's pocket, we thought, as we saw the bats descend in a body to the earth we had so lately rifled, as if seeking for some cursed and unholy nourishment. But the autumn moon shone weak and pale, 
and we could not be sure. So, too, as we sailed the next day away from Holland to our home, we thought we heard the faint distant banging of some gigantic hound in the background, but the autumn wind moaned sad and wane, and we could not be sure. Chapter 2 Less than a week after our return to England, strange things began to happen. We lived as recluses, devoid of friends, alone and without servants, in a few rooms of an ancient manor house on a bleak and unfrequented moor, so that our doors were seldom disturbed by the knock of the visitor. Now, however, we were troubled by what seemed to be frequent fumblings in the night, not only around the door, but around the windows also, upper as well as lower. Once we fancied that large, opaque body darkened the library window where the moon was shining against it, and another time, we thought we heard a roaring or flapping sound not far off. On each occasion, investigation revealed nothing, and we began to ascribe the occurrences with, to imagination alone. That same curiously disturbed imagination which still prolonged in our ears the faint, far baying we thought we heard. In the Holland churchyard, the Jade Ambulant now repose in a niche in a niche of our museum, and sometimes we burn strangely scented candles before it. We read much in Alzared's Necronomicon about its properties and about the relations of ghoul's souls to the objects it symbolizes, and were disturbed by what we read. On the night of September 24th, I heard a knock on my chamber door. Venturing it was St. John, I bade the knocker enter, but was only answered by a shrill laugh. There was no one in the corridor. When I aroused St. John from his sleep, he professed entire ignorance of the event, and became as worried as I. It was that night that the faint, distant baying over the moor became to us a certain and dreaded reality. Four days later, whilst we both in the hidden museum, there came a low, curious scratching at the single door which led to the secret library staircase. Our alarm was now divided, for beside our fear of the unknown, we had always entertained a dread that our grisly collection might be discovered. Extinguishing all lights, we continued to the door and threw it suddenly open, whereupon we felt a unaccountable rush of air and heard as if rescinding far away a queer combination of wrestling, tittering, and articulate chattering. Whether we were mad, dreaming, or in our senses, we did not try to determine. We only realized with the blackest of apprehensions that apparently disembodied chatter was beyond a doubt in the Dutch language. After we lived in growing horror and fascination, mostly we held to the theory that we were jointly going mad from our life of unnatural excitements, and sometimes it pleased us more to dramatize ourselves as the victims of some creeping and appalling doom. Bizarre manifestations now too frequent to count. Our lonely house was seemingly alive with the presence of some malign being whose nature we could not guess, and every night that demonic baying 
rolled over the windswept moor, always louder and louder. On October 29th, we found in the soft earth underneath the library window a series of footprints utterly impossible to describe. They were baffling. They were as baffling as a horde of great bats which haunted the old manor house in unprecedented and increasing numbers. The horror reached culmination on November 18th, when St. John, walking home after dark from some distant railway station, was seized by some frightening, carnivorous thing and torn to ribbons. His scream reached the house, and I hastened to the terrible scene in time to hear a whir of wings and see a vague black cloudy thing silhouetted against the rising moon. My friend was dying when I spoke to him, and he could not answer coherently. All he could do was whisper, The amulet, that damned thing. Then he collapsed, an inert mass of mangled flesh. I buried him the next midnight in one of our neglected gardens, and mumbled over his body one of the devilish rituals which he loved in life. And as I pronounced the last demonic sentence, I heard afar, on the moor, the faint baying of some gigantic hound. The moon was up, but I dare not look at it. And when I saw the dim, litten moor, a wide nebulous shadow sweeping from mound to mound, I shut my eyes and drew myself face down on the ground. When I arose trembling, I know not how much later. I staggered into the home and made shocking obstinences before the enshrined amulet of green jade. Being now afraid to live alone in the ancient house on the moor, I departed on the following day for London, taking with me the amulet after destroying by fire the rest of the impious collection in the museum. But after three nights, I heard the bang again, and before a week was over, I felt strange eyes upon me whenever it was dark. One evening, as, as I strolled on the Victorian embankment for some needed air, I saw a black shape obscured one of the reflections of the lamp in the water. Wind stronger than the night wind rushed by, and I knew that what had befallen St. John must soon befall me. The next day, I carefully wrapped the green jay amulet and sailed for Holland. What mercy might I gain by returning the thing to its silent sleeping owner? I knew not, but I felt that I must at least try any step conceivably logical. What the hound was and why it pursued me were questions still vague, but I had first heard the baying in the ancient churchyard and every subsequent events, including John's dying whispers, had served to connect the curse with the stealing of the amulet. Accordingly, I sank in the nethermost abysses of despair when, at the end of Rotterdam, I discovered the thieves spoiled me of this sole mean of salvation. The baying was loud that evening, and in the morning I read of a nameless deed in the vilest quarter of the city. The rabble were in terror, for upon me an evil tenement had fallen a red death beyond the foulest previous crime of the neighborhood. In a squalid thieves' tin, 
An entire family had been torn to shreds by an unknown thing that had left no trace, and those around had heard all night, above the usual clamor of drunken voices, a faint, deep, insistent note of a gigantic hound. So at last I stood against the unwholesome churchyard where a pale winter moon cast hideous shadows and leafless trees drooped sullenly to meet the withered, frosty grass in cracking slabs and the ivy church pointed a jeering finger at an unfriendly sky and the night wind howled maniacally over the frozen swamps and frigid seas. The baying was very faint now and it ceased altogether as I approached the ancient graveyard I had once violated and frightened away as a abnormally large horde of bats which had been hovering curiously around it. I know not why I went thither, unless to pray or gibber out insane pleas and apologies to the calm white thing that lies within. But whatever my reasons, I attack the half-frozen sod with a desperation and partly that of a dominating will outside of myself. Excavating was much easier than I expected. At one point, I encountered a queer interruption when a lean vulture darted down of the cold sky and pecked frantically at the grave earth until I killed him with a blow of my spade. I finally reached the rotting oblong box and removed the damp, nitrous cover. This is the last rational act I ever performed, for crouched within that centuried coffin, embraced by a close packing of nightmare retinue, huge sinewy sleeping bats was the bony thing my friend had and I had robbed. Not clean and placid as we seen it, but covered with caked blood and shredded and shreds of alien flesh and hair and leering sentinelly at me with phosphorescent sockets and sharp and sanguine fangs yawning, twisted with a mockery of my inevitable doom. And when it gave from those grinning jaws a deep sardonic bay as if some gigantic hound i saw that it held in its gory filthy claws the lost and faithful amulet of green jade i merely screamed and ran away idiotically my screams soon dissolving into peals of hysterical laughter madness rides the star wind claw and teeth sharpened on centuries of corpses dripping death Besides a bacchanal of bats from the night-black ruins of buried temples of Belial, now as the baying of the dead fleshless monstrosity grows louder and louder, in the stealthy roaring, a flapping of those accursed web wings circle closer and closer, I shall seek with my revolver the oblivion, which is my only refuge from the unnamed and unnameable.